I, th- I think back to when I entered this industry back in the late 90s at, at Merrill Lynch, where we did build everything. And the reason we built everything is because there wasn't large commercial vendors in this space. There wasn't a lot of startups. There wasn't fintechs per se. So we had to build everything. That was Kevin Adams from Edward Jones talking about how the technology landscape for wealth management firms has changed over the past few decades. We now have an almost overwhelming number of vendor platforms to choose from in every category. But this myriad of options has also led to duplicative functionality, unnecessary costs, and confusion for operations and support staff. According to a survey done by Fuse Research, almost 50% of wealth management firms are considering consolidating some of their technology platforms within the next two years. This makes platform consolidation an important issue that every CTO and CIO should be planning for. I spoke to Kevin on this episode about some of the lessons he's learned from being part of multiple platform consolidation projects, advice that he would give to technology vendors to make future consolidation projects easier, and a whole lot more on the Wealth Tech Today podcast. joined Edward Jones in January 2021 as a principal in the technology division responsible for the Business Solutions Development Group. He and his team spearhead the development of digital advisor, client, and operations technology. Kevin has over 25 years of experience in the wealth and asset management industries. Prior to joining Edward Jones, Kevin was Senior Vice President of Wealth Management Technology at Raymond James, where he was responsible for all advisor and client technology. Kevin has also held senior positions in technology at UBS, Franklin Templeton, and Merrill Lynch. I'm excited to introduce our next guest on the podcast. It is Kevin Adams, general partner at Edward Jones in the technology division. Kevin, welcome to the program. Good to see you, Craig. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you can make it. I'm glad we, we worked all this out. You're a busy guy. Where are you calling in from now? I am in Carmel, Indiana, where uh, my wife, Maggie, and I moved to, boy, almost a year and a half, two years ago now. Yeah, it's a big change from where you were. It it certainly is, but uh, we're really happy here. It's been great. The weather's not bothering you? Uh, It was a little bit of an adjustment, but, uh, you know, having a lot of family here and, yeah, it's, uh, and and culturally, the the Midwest is just more more akin to the, the two of us. Well, I was always jealous when you were down in Tampa because I'm stuck here in New Jersey. So now we're kind of the same. We got similar weather. Yeah, I, I think uh, if you live there year round, you wouldn't be jealous after spending a couple <laughs> of years. Uh, sweat, when you wake up at 5 a.m. and try to go for a run and it's already 100 degrees out. Yeah, yeah it's, we all got those problems. All right. So yeah, let's uh, let's jump into what we're talking about. So this is part of our uh, our January uh topic on platform consolidation. And again, thanks for being here and, and, uh, and sharing some of your experiences and some of your strategies. So let's talk about large scale platform consolidation projects you've been a part of. Which ones can you share with us? I can think of several off the top of my head, just in the advisory and managed account arena. 
having been responsible for wealth management technology and specifically advisory platforms now at four large wealth managers, I've seen a lot of evolution over the past 15 years, both in internally developed and also well-known commercial managed account platforms. Yeah, I mean, it's when you've been around as long as you and I have, you've seen a lot of stuff and uh, you, know, you start to get the battle scars and, and the, uh, you know, to, to, to what, what you know works and, and what doesn't work. So, so you've been involved with more than one consolidation project. So is it a mix of, I imagine it's a mix of successes and failures and lessons you've learned? Yeah, for sure. I'll talk about the significant uh, challenges or failures first. Uh, one was with a well-known commercial managed account platform that was purchased to be leveraged by a global wealth manager to replace a legacy end-to-end -end advisory platform that was portfolio management, rebalancing, and accounting. It was being brought in to replace a mainframe-based system with a really old user interface. Rather than just use the commercial platform out of the box, the wealth manager had decided to make so much customization to the vendor's platform, it became a huge burden for the vendor to make and maintain all of those changes. The project was significantly challenged due to that approach, delayed over budget. So lesson number one, don't try to over-customize vendor-based managed account platforms. Try to use what the vendors built I'll often refer to it as the 80-20 rule. Don't let any customization you make exceed 20% of the functionality of the platform itself and keep 80% with what the vendor or commercial provider has provided. In another example, a large wealth manager who was trying to build everything front to back in the advisory technology space from scratch, the time, the effort, the skill, the resources to build a modern, robust managed account platform is something you can't pull off in two, three, or four years without an army of experienced people and a huge budget. Even then, trying to get on par or even eclipse today's commercial managed account platforms is a Herculean effort. Lesson number two, today, a build-everything approach is complex. It takes significant resources, and that's people and money. Leverage a buy and integrate strategy, even if it's a hybrid or a mix of commercial and internally custom technology. So these are excellent lessons. This, this, these can save uh, companies millions of dollars if only they would listen. One of, one of the jokes I use a lot with consulting is, you know, clients pay me for my advice, but I can't force them to take it. You know, it's just, it's I think that's well said. All right. So you're talking about the 80-20 rule. So what is it about uh, enterprise wealth management firms that push them to over-complicate things and over-customize? Over-customization or, or over-complication sometimes comes from also trying to meet every single need. Of, of every single advisor or every single option that's out there on the market. And you have to stay focused at what you're really trying to accomplish from a business perspective. That's gonna be the most meaningful again to the advisors and their clients. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. It's really focusing on the areas that your firm can differentiate themselves. You know, No one's gonna care 
if your rebalancer does X, Y, and Z, it's not going to change the, the business you get or whether a client works with you or not or trusts you or not. But we find that, I don't know if you found the same thing, focusing more on front-end changes or interface changes rather than back-end changes usually has more bang for your buck. Would you agree with that? Agreed. Yeah, I would agree with that, definitely. And in your second example, which we've also seen, where firms, I think they fall under the spell of the CTO, CIO, who says, I can build it, no problem. Give me, build, give me an empire so I can build this. So is, is that oftentimes what, what you're seeing where it's, it's someone you know, over-promising or is it another reason why they're doing that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's an old school mindset. I, th I think back to when I entered this industry myself back in the late 90s at, at Merrill Lynch, where we did build everything. And the reason we built everything is because there wasn't large commercial vendors in this space. There wasn't a lot of startups. There wasn't fintechs per se. So we had to build everything. Fast forward now, you know, 22, 25 years later, there's a lot of well-established commercial providers doing this at scale. And then there's also been an emergence of a lot of startups in the fintech space, specifically in portfolio management, rebalancing, risk management, tax optimization, model management. So using commercial off-the-shelf tools is just a quicker time to, to market. And also, I believe that you gain a lot of intellectual capital from those years of experience of what that product now being deployed at other wealth managers, that functionality that's been put into it, others glean as they utilize it, and then they put their own functionality or intellectual property in the platform where others can take advantage of it too. Yeah, all good points. Yeah, it's um, another thing we see is they don't, firms don't realize when they want to build themselves that having the vendor do that for you has it, and they have, they have a huge advantage because they can bring in these features from every other firm that they work with. So you're getting that, you're getting the benefit of this group, you know, this crowdsourced system that many other firms are adding to and building it yourself, you lose that. Well, you, of course, you get exactly what you want. You don't get the benefit of the rest of the industry feeding in features and functionality to this platform. So. Uh, exactly. points. Also, you mentioned Merrill Lynch. I think we just missed each other because I worked uh, at ADP, uh, a brokerage services group, and they had that division in the early 90s. I think I left there in 98. And Merrill was our first client. Yeah. Right? So I, I yeah. helped with that. I did that rollout. And uh, that was a stock market data back when you could charge for that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So all, all good stuff way back in the past. All right. So now we've talked about lessons learned post project, when you've made the mistakes, here's the lessons you learned. What about preemptively? What about before uh, a firm, a wealth management firm goes into a platform consolidation, or even if they have, they're not even thinking of it, what can they do to prepare themselves now for that possible future? I think all wealth managers, both large and small, should have their finger on the pulse of what other firms are doing from a competitive perspective. And then have depth of understanding how the commercial managed account platforms stack up against their own platform, then they need to overlay that with their own roadmap and functional needs as a business to see where they're on par or where the gaps are. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're always looking for ways to to think about the future, and uh, you know, firms oftentimes wait until the last minute or wait until it's right upon them to start thinking, and that's really too late. Uh, so when, you, when you're talking about understanding your your platform and looking at how it stacks up, they should be doing that. Would you recommend is that an annual process or semi-annual? How, how often would you say they should be looking at that and looking at the gaps? The way I've seen it done, and I think this works well, is most firms go through an annual process for prioritization of initiatives, projects, where money's going to be spent, where that money being spent matches the business objectives or the, the business needs. So I do think annually, or in the sense of if you follow a product model and you had um, a product manager or a, a product owner, they're probably doing that spending a lot of time doing that over the course of the year, but certainly at least once a year, that needs to happen only because the advances in, in the industry, not only their competitors, but also the commercial providers, it's moving so quick, minimum, you need to do it yearly. I'd like to take a break from this episode to talk about one of our sponsors, the Invest in Others Foundation. The Invest in Others Foundation is a charitable foundation that helps Charities, which are supported by financial advisors. So if you know a financial advisor that supports a charity, either in the U.S. or abroad, you can submit his or her name to the Invest in Others Foundation, to one of their programs, and they can be awarded uh, money for their charity. The Invest in Others Foundation is running one of their programs right now called Grants for Good. The application deadline is next week, January 24th. So please submit your financial advisor, as you know, for this grant. I think they're awarding up to $100,000 in grants to a number of charities. So any person who works in the financial services ecosystem is eligible to apply on behalf of a nonprofit. Uh, applications must be uh, active, currently volunteering with the nonprofit, and you just fill out the form online and you get a chance to uh, get some money for these nonprofits. I've been uh, honored to be a judge in some of these uh, programs, and it's really tough. We have to look at 10 uh, different charities and decide and, and their advisors who help them and decide which ones to get the money. It's really hard. So the more money that you donate to invest in others, the more of these grants we can give. It makes it easier for us to pick because we'll have more money to, to spread around. So please go to the Invest in Others Foundation, investinothers.org on the web. You can learn more about them. Thanks. So far, we've covered platform consolidation from the client side, the enterprise wealth management side. We talked about lessons learned for these firms, as well as preemptive steps that they can do in preparation for future platform consolidations. But now let's look at it from the other side. Kevin, what are three pieces of advice for the platform vendors that they can do to make platform consolidation projects easier for their clients? I think first, it all starts with the data. They need flexible data models, integration layers that make the integration and the flow of data between the back, middle, and front office systems easier. Second, make sure the user experience or the interface of the application is modern, stays modern. No financial advisor or investment professional wants to use a system that looks like it was developed tens of years ago. 
And I think that goes to the point you made earlier around the interface itself that the advisors are going to use. And then third, good interoperability and well-defined API, so application programming interfaces with other commercial platforms so you can build an ecosphere of managed account functionality within the overall wealth management lifecycle. Those are all, that's, that's a million dollars worth of advice right there, I have to say. So when you're, when you're talking about data and data models, a lot of companies don't see that as important. They, they sort of overlook that and they just see, well, it's data. We'll, we'll get to it when we need it. But why is it important when you're talking about the flow of data? Can you talk a little bit about understanding the flow between your different systems and, and some, some advice around understanding that and how to make that better? Yeah, and, and I'm glad you, you pulled the thread on that one a bit more because I did start with data. I think focusing on the data is really around helping to reduce multiple copies of both operational and transactional data platforms that get replicated throughout a firm so much to the extent you don't know where the authoritative source is anymore. It enables that efficient movement and, and transformation of, of data across platforms. So, you know, modern ETL tools are there, continue to grow, continue to be needed to stitch all of these systems together. And so, although that's important, you want to have to, you want to be, you want to be able to minimize the use of, of ETL so much to move and transform data. Um, it really provides the right interface for the users and other systems to read and write. And then lastly, it's around establishing that common vocabulary and, and helps with, with data cleanliness. So you know what data you're dealing with in a system and really where it came from, why it's being used and how it's being used. And your cleanliness of data is next to your godliness of data. The, um, so a couple of things you, you, you mentioned, they're all, all right on the mark. You know, we, we built a, a data assessment um, product that we sell as a, as a consulting product because we're seeing exactly what you mentioned. They're, they lose the understanding of where their good data is. They, don't, they no longer have a golden source because they brought in so many different tools or different platforms over the years and no one has gone back and, and reevaluated, as you mentioned, the operational and the transactional data platforms and how they're interacting. So that's spot on. And your, your common vocabulary also that a lot of firms, as they grow, and as you've seen, you know, you've been at some of the biggest companies at UBS and, and Merrill Lynch, and now at Raymond James, uh, rather now at um, uh, Edward Jones, that you're seeing that the firms grow over time they lose that vocabulary and different teams start speaking different languages about the exact same data. And it, 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 it starts to make it much more difficult to build systems and much more difficult to manage your existing system. So that's why I pulled that because we, we do, we're doing a lot of work on data and it's, it's a hot button topic for us. Yeah. Uh, you're very spot on. Yeah. So the, um, on the, on your second point and your third point, so interoperability and APIs, what are you seeing along those lines in terms of the trend? I mean, obviously it's easy to say, well, they're building more APIs, but what is it about the, the interoperability and the definition of APIs that can make it easier 
for a consolidation project to succeed? So if I look at the, the established advisory managed account vendors in this space and the interoperability sometimes within multiple solutions or, or products that they sell. And, and maybe that was through, generally it's through acquisition of, of you know, competing products that came together under one umbrella over time. I think many of the large commercial vendors out there still struggle with well-defined APIs or, or being able to create that interoperability for those dissimilar or similar systems to communicate with each other. And then if I look at it going outward from there, there there's there's a reason the, you know, the, the use of um, MuleSoft or, or many of the other vendors that are out there, and I'm not promoting them per se, but those API platforms that exist, they exist because you have to be able to get that data in a common format between internally developed commercial systems and commercial systems. I, I just have not seen yet any commercial vendor do a really good job at publishing a clean, well-defined API spec and then being able to partner with other firms to make their maybe similar but yet competing products be able to work with each other. You brought up a good point that a lot of uh, our clients don't realize is that not only are they merging and growing through acquisition and, and causing you know, problems and issues in their back office and front office, but the vendors are as well. The vendors are snapping up other companies to try to grow either their PE backed and they need to grab more revenue or they just see opportunities in the market to build out their platform. They want to have an end to end uh, delivery. So they're buying up all these companies and then they're suffering from the integration problems and the over promises and under delivery and um, and the turnover. And that's something that's a, it's a non-functional requirement that we often have clients review is how well is the vendor dealing with their own growth? And that's something that's, it's, it's often opaque because they don't you know, no vendor wants to admit when they're having these kind of problems, but it's something you need to realize because you're going to be in bed with these guys. You're, you're basically, it's a marriage for, you know, seven or 10 years usually is how long these platforms last because it's hard to get rid of them. Uh, you know, as you, as you, uh, you were talking about that none of these vendors are really, have really built out a well-defined API that's easy to use, that's well-documented, that has sample source code, that has enough staff to support them. So a lot of firms are on their own and they've got to, you know, sort of, sort of work their way through the wilderness, through the darkness and, and, and build this stuff. Yeah. Do you agree? I, I think I do agree. Um, there's also going back to the point you you started with earlier around the user interface itself. A lot of these large commercial vendors out there, as they're acquiring firms, yes, the interoperability or the APIs between the the systems are a challenge, but even the user interfaces or the experience for the advisor or client that's touching these systems, and in most cases, it's the advisor. It could be the same umbrella or or the same vendor name, but yet it looks like, you know, and it could be six distinct products, but it looks like you're using six distinct products from six different companies. So also I think the, the user experience or the interface of the applications needs to evolve and, and needs to look common if it's coming from one provider or, or one vendor. 
Now, one thing I know you're good at, and I've seen you do this um, when, you, when you're judging at conferences, judging uh, demos, you're very good at seeing behind the curtain or at least kind of peeking behind the curtain if you can, because the demos always look good, right? That's they're only showing the best of the best and they're only showing the stuff that works. So what's, what advice can you give to uh, other firms that are getting demos? How can they kind of peel the onion a bit and, and see, is it really working the way they're telling me it's working or is there something behind the scenes that's, that's not working right? Once you get past the demos, you have to go through, take some of your use cases, take some test data, take some dummy data from your firm, and you actually have to run it through their system and, and run it through the process. It, it, it may not be the, the identical real world use case that you know, you, you'd have your advisors using, but it needs to be close to it. So that's one, actually testing the system out. Two, talk to other clients. Have, have a deep discussion with clients that have been on the system, been using it for a while, listen to you know, the successes, listen to the opportunities, listen to the, the challenges they've dealt with in the, in the platform. I think those two I've, I've seen skipped by firms time and time again, um, but they, they just pay off in, in the longer term before a decision of, of you know, purchasing something without really trying to put it through some semblance of paces or learning around how it's performed or how it's worked with a competitor. So true. We, we often refer to that as user acceptance testing, that you need to build out that test plan. And run, even though the vendor tells you it's going to work, you can't trust them because this is your business. And you need to, as you said, run the data through, even if it's just a sample, to make sure that it works the way they say. And also define what it means to accept that. And how do you, what's your exit criteria? It's got to do this, this, and this. And here are the things we expect. Have you seen any, any issues around that where you're doing your UAT and you know, it's not working well. And how do you work with the vendor to, to get that resolved? Of course, I've seen that. I and know you've seen I think of, I asked that question. I, I, <laughs> I, I think of, I'm, I'm going to go away from the functional side for a minute and an area that a lot of people don't always talk about or, or maybe think about in, in advance coming to close into UAT is, is really the non-functional side performance calculations, performance of the system, uptime, responsiveness. So when going through that, that final stage you talk about of, of, of UAT, that's really around the functionality of the system, but the non-functional side has, is, is often either forgotten or not paid as much of attention to. And in this day and age, when you need, you know, quadruple nine uptime for these, these systems, because, you know, millions, billions of dollars are, are flowing through them, that scalability, reliability, robustness of these vendor commercial, most of the time, you know, SaaS cloud-based hosted solutions really needs to be tested thoroughly. Yes. The non-functional requirements are often overlooked. To, to the expense of the functional requirements, because the functionals are in front of your face. It's easier to see those than the non-functional. Yeah. The, so with, when we're talking about interoperability, back to integration, when you're doing platform consolidation, you often have a choice. Uh, sometimes it is a choice or, you know, of a vendor, which one you're picking. 
sometimes it isn't. If you're acquiring another firm, oftentimes the acquired firm's software gets 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 nixed. But if you have a choice and and you're you're, you're picking and choosing, how do you define which applications get integrated, which applications get replaced? That's going to vary so much depending on 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 the the business itself. I think, and I'll take the, the last piece, which applications get replaced. Some of that starts with the, the overall just architecture of the application. Is it, is it legacy? You know, does it run on, on a modern stack? Is it something that maybe not as cloud-based today? Is it gonna be easy to, to move it into the cloud? Is it secure? Is it, is it performant? Um, and, and those will help you make that decision. If, if you're talking about, you know, acquiring another firm where you're inheriting a, a, a technology stack, you could spend a lot of time trying to modernize a platform and you have to balance that versus saying, you know, we're going to replicate this functionality into something new. That something new could be an internal custom build. That something new could be a, a, another vendor solution. So I think that's a really important piece of it. And I wouldn't call that functional or, or non-functional, but really just the, the underlying architecture stack, how modern is the platform itself from a technology perspective. So when we're talking about the, um, the platform consolidation projects and how to support them and make them more, give, you, give yourself a higher probability of success. One thing you mentioned is, a, is the data, data models and the data architecture. So how, can, can you go in a little bit more detail on how a well-designed data architecture supports platform consolidation projects? I believe it starts with understanding, and I, I touched on this earlier, what is the data, where did it come from, how is it being used? So really the authoritative source of it, making sure that it's curated well, it's managed well, you're not making multiple copies of it. Other systems are now using it, writing to it. We're not really sure where the authoritative source came from. You know, was it derived data? So hence understanding the depth of the, the calculation and why that calculation was used and, and the output. It's not just about the data and the systems or how they're being used, but the, the audit mechanism of understanding if something went wrong or there was a question about a, a calculation or a trade within the system, being able to understand that whole lineage of, of the data to be able to recreate that scenario to either validate what happened was, was actually right or try to understand what went wrong. That goes back to your earlier comment about a common vocabulary, which is also, uh, I think can be described as a data dictionary and be able to build that data dictionary. So you know which, which data is coming from the source, which data is derived, which data is calculated. And without that, that changes over time, you have these slowly changing dimensions over years or more where the data slowly morphs, Not, nothing big, Nothing major where it's enough to, to get people concerned, but slowly morphing over time. And you wind up with a completely different data set than you had when you started out seven or 10 years ago. True. 
So with the, so the common vocabulary also helps with data cleanliness. Can you talk a little about um, specifically when, when, you're, when you're consolidating multiple platforms that why is data cleanliness important? I think I touched on it in, in the last answer, but that cleanliness is important. You're, you're managing money, you're rebalancing a portfolio, you're placing a trade, you're you know, understanding performance of, uh, of, of an account or a portfolio or a specific security. That data is everything that's gonna define why you're doing something or, or, or how you're doing something and, and making sure you're, you're doing it right. So hence why all large enterprises the last five, 10 years have taken data so seriously with data strategies, data architects, beeping up their data engineering, data stewards. It's, it's, it's become such an important factor in, in financial services and, and albeit investment banking, capital markets, the sell side, buy side, asset management, wealth management, data is, is, is one of the data and understanding the cleanliness is, is one of the most important things that we have to focus on as a, a firm or in, in, in my role as a technologist. So we're running out of time. I want to squeeze in one more question. When you're consolidating platforms, and we mentioned earlier about replacing platforms or integrating platforms, and sometimes you don't have a choice and sometimes you do, if you're integrating multiple vendors, what's some advice you can give uh, firms about that process and how to make it a smooth uh, offering so that in the end, your interfaces and you're getting a best of breed, but you're not suffering from the, the consequences of, of having different vendors all fighting to, to get uh, things done. Yeah, I think, and I'll, I'll start with the, the large commercial managed account or advisory vendors. They need to partner with other firms that may be competitors, so some coopetition to provide a more robust offering end-to-end -end for wealth managers. And we talked about this via those well-defined interfaces for best-of-breed components. And the example I would use is you could have vendor ABC which may have a, a robust tax optimization engine. Vendor EFG might be best in class from portfolio construction capabilities. They need to work together on their APIs, on the data integration of the product. So I uh, think about wealth managers could go out there and pick and choose from the imaginary managed account app store, so to speak, to implement the best platform that meets their advisors and clients' needs. And that's really talking about that hybrid-based solution where it might not be build it all yourself. It might not be just buy one solution and try to force it into your needs. So doing a lot of customization, it's really picking and choosing the best solution and being able to work together. And then from an experience perspective, not just the systems communicating or the underlying data, but that the experience is fairly cohesive for the advisor that's using the system. And with that, I'm gonna have to wrap up this interview. Kevin, you said it all. You brought everything we wanted to talk about. You covered it in record time. Thank you, Craig. So happy. Thank you, you sir. Are, you killed it, man. So thanks so much for, for sharing 
Uh, can you tell uh, people listening where they can find out more information about uh, Edward Jones? edwardjones.com. Easy. Go to edwardjones.com. And Kevin, thanks so much for being on the program. Really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much, Craig. It's a pleasure to see you. Yeah, talk to you soon. Hey, it's Craig again. Here are my three takeaways from this interview with Kevin Adams. And it was tough for me to narrow it down to just three. There's so much good stuff here. But number one, uh, lessons learned. Don't try to over-customize a vendor managed account platform. Use what the vendor has built. Uh, think of the A20 rule. Number two, don't try to build it all from scratch. There's too much out there. There's too much code already working. There's too many vendors that have platforms that have been successful uh, in many ways. Take what's out there and leverage it. If you do want to do a best of breed approach, do that. But don't try to build the entire wealth platform from scratch. You're doomed to failure. And number three, it all starts with data. Look at your data, understand your data, uh, look at the data architecture, make sure you have a golden source for all your data, make sure you have a data dictionary that's updated with the latest information uh, as things have changed over the years. Uh, you wanna review that and try to minimize the use of ETL, keep everything connected uh, real time where possible. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please go to our website, ezragroupllc.com Go to the homepage and scroll to the bottom and subscribe to our newsletter. Once a month, you'll receive an email chock full of wealth management goodness, news, updates, analysis, links. You will not be disappointed. So thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you all again next time.